Hey everybody, welcome to Grounded Truth, the podcast where we gather some of the world's most influential data scientists, machine learning practitioners, and innovation leaders for conversations on the most relevant topics in AI today. I'm your host, John Singleton, co-founder and head of success here at Watchful, the machine teaching platform for data-centric AI. You can try Watchful for free today at www.watchful.io. And if you like this content and want to get more, please like, subscribe, follow on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or anywhere that you can get podcasts today. Joining me today is Manasi Vartik, founder and CEO at Verta, the platform that enables end-to-end -end automation for Gen AI application development. Prior to founding Verta, Manasi created ModelDB while a PhD student at MIT and cut her teeth in industry at a few small companies, Microsoft, Twitter, Facebook, and Google. Really glad to have you here, Manasi. Thank you for having me, excited for this. Awesome. Also in the room here is, well, I guess not technically in the room, in the virtual room is my co-founder and Watchful CEO, Cheyenne Mahanti. How's it going, man? Hey, hey, I'm good. Glad to be back. Absolutely. So today, uh, well, and before we dive in, I want to give you the chance to plug Verta. Uh, specifically, I have three questions for you. Who is Verta for? What problem do you solve? And why should they, why are you solving that problem now? Or why is now the time to solve that problem? Awesome. Thank you for that opportunity. Um, so Verda is a ML infrastructure company. Um, we started off doing model management and model serving. That's where my PhD work was, and that's where uh, my CTO and my expertise uh, was as well. So this means keeping track of the models as you're building them, keeping lineage, where did the model come from, what data set was used, how well did it perform, and then once you have a model, actually running it in a production setting. So taking things that are usually batch oriented and then making them real time because you have, say, a customer at the other end that's looking for a response to your chat. Um, or you might have a scenario where you're trying to publish um, an insurance application and you want to do underwriting in real time. So those are the kinds of applications that we started with. Um, and then this year, as everyone knows, has been the year of Gen AI. Um, happily for us, Gen AI models are just larger models, uh, much, right. much larger, but they're still models. Um, and so our expertise on how do you manage them, how do you run them in production, how do you scale them, uh, were super relevant. And so recently we released what we call the Gen AI Workbench, which takes someone with an idea for a Gen AI application from, let's call it zero to hero um, in a very short amount of time. So we help with the day zero, where you're just building an app, then you're going to your day one to 10, call it, where you're optimizing your prompts, your data set, your fine tuning, and then day N, where you wanna scale it, you wanna make it more efficient. So we aim to be the one platform that can take you through that process. Um, and we're seeing some really great use cases and adoption on the platform. So if you're trying to do any set of those things, then go check out Verda at www.verda.ai. Awesome, and I think that's a very, apt uh, realm uh, for our discussion today, because what I wanted to dig in with you today is uh, a little bit about the challenges and really the shift from traditional, like quote unquote, classical ML model development and application development in this new world and new hot phrase or concatenation, whatever you want to call it, of Gen AI, uh, and specifically around putting those applications in production. So not just, you know, I've done something on ChatGPT and it looks and feels and smells really cool, or I played with API for the first time. It's I've understood and discovered business value. I've already gone through the POC process. I might even have a couple of these applications that I want to put up. Uh, you know, what's changed? What's painful about it? And how can we think about the workflow 
uh, as it relates to large language model uh, integration development. Uh, and so I was just going to start off, I think you already hit a little bit of it here. Uh, a week ago, approximately, today's December 7th, uh, a week ago today, uh, a one-year anniversary of the release of ChatGPT. I'm really curious, uh, what's changed in your world and you know, what's changed in your customers' world since that, you know, in that year? That that question alone could take an hour. I'll give a condensed <laughs> version. Anyone who's been in this space for you know more than a couple of years will have seen the tectonic shift that happened this year, right? Like last year, everyone was about MLOps. How do we run these models? Maybe there was model monitoring, management, and then GPT dropped on the scene um, end of last year. And then every conversation as the year progressed was really around Gen AI. So how do I use Gen AI? Um, how is it different? How do I retool my teams um, so that we can leverage Gen AI? This was actually the first time I think in been in this uh, field more than a decade at this point. This was the first time when business was so hungry for AI that right. every data science leader we talked to was like, we have way too many requests for data science coming all across the organization and we just don't have the resources to handle them. Yeah. Um, and so I feel GPT did something that the technologists who have been working in the space for many decades couldn't do. It really democratized it in a way yep. that previously never had been possible. So there's various nuances about people trying to apply Gen AI where they can use traditional AI models and all of that that we might get into. But at a top level, it put AI on the map in every boardroom, in every team discussion in a really unprecedented manner. And so that was my big takeaway is like, this has done more to advance the field in terms of opportunities than anything else. So I'm just very excited for it. A hundred percent. I will, I firmly believe the brilliance, you know, modeling aside, obviously is pretty incredible, but was in the interface by providing a chat interface to where, uh, you know, one of my customers even said now business unit leaders can POC themselves. They don't need to engage any technical resources, just they fire up chat GPT or insert model, you know, uh, model subscription service of choice and, you know, see a result and say, Hey, why can't I do this now? Or we should be doing this. And uh, it's caused both a lot of excitement and I think uh, a lot of internal alarm. team headache. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah uh, alarm and scare. Uh, a lot of requests for Turing yeah. prizes and things that simply will may never exist, but uh, it's yeah. exciting nonetheless. 100%. So uh, maybe walk me through it at like a super high level, uh, the traditional kind of ML model development workflow and concerns and what has changed now in Gen AI. For sure. Um, so when we say traditional, I'm going to maybe call out the various types of modeling might go in there. So you might start with regression where you're, um, computing, say what will, how much inventory might I sell depending on the month of the year and geographically where you're located all the way to deep learning models where you might have a fairly large model that's doing, um, computer vision sort of detection or segmentation. I'm going to bucket all of them into the traditional, um, although they were not traditional a few years ago, as I like to remind people, like this is still new stuff, deep learning. Um, and what has the typical process there was you collect a lot of data and by lot, you know, it's not a thousand, it's going to be a millions of data points in the large settings that most people uh, want to use this in. 
they're going to collect a lot of data. They're going to go off and train a model. They're going to try different kinds of models, different parameters to use. They're going to evaluate that um, model on some sort of test data. They're going to test it out some more, and then they're going to deploy it. Um, and the process of building, or as we like to call it, experimentation, is very much how can we optimize it for the best performance. And on the other hand, you have the deployment world where you're taking this model and then you're running it in an efficient and robust manner so that you can use it in a real application setting. So that's where the experimentation and production worlds have also historically been very different because you don't care about performance, like um, latency throughput during the experimentation phase, but you care a lot about that on the production phase. Right. So at a high level, I would say that's how traditional ML um, has been done. I assume you guys see it very similarly, right? I, I would be remiss to add one more step of data curation and cleaning as what, what as we started as a lab, uh, labeling automation company. So of course... <laughs> But uh, yeah, no, 100%. Um, we've definitely uh, seen that same same flow many a time. Perfect. Yeah, um, 100%. So if you compare that flow to what is going on in Gen AI, the biggest difference um, you're going to notice is you don't need to train the models anymore. And so the whole experimentation phase is compressed significantly. Um, where you're using a GPT model or you're using Llama or you're using Mistral, whatever model you pick, um, and you can get started immediately. So there isn't a training process. You don't even need to go and collect data. There's a caveat to that that I'm going to get to in a second. But in principle, you do not need to collect the data. You do not need to train the model. The model exists. It's an API, and you're just building the application. And so that's one of the main things that we've seen is it's much less about the models is much more about the applications that you're enabling. And I think that's great as a field. Um, one of the challenges with data science or AI is how do you show value and yep. you show value when it's actually integrated into a business process. And previously that wasn't happening as much. So the shift to application orientedness, I think is a net plus. Um, so I'd say that's one. The second one is this, um, the production and the experimentation side are closer than before um, because you are using the final models, so to speak, in right. a lot of these settings. So where research could build a really inefficient model and not care how it performed in real world, that's no longer an option. So that's where the production requirements have now percolated all the way into experimentation where you might not pick such a large model because it's going to be slow or expensive or it's not as effective at the particular task. So those things we're seeing, there's a shift left almost. If you think about software, there's a shift left that's happening there. Right. Um, so that's second. The third one I would say is um, evaluation is really, really hard. Um, and I mm -hmm. think you folks have talked about that a little bit on, this, on previous podcast episodes, but I'll recap it to say, in traditional ML, there are good metrics that are accuracy, uh, AUROC, precision recall, whichever one makes sense in your case. There are numeric objective metrics that you can use right. um, because with GenEI, you're creating open-ended text or images a lot of times. Or if you're doing RAG, you're still, there's a human looking at whether the answer is correct, 
that leads to much more subjective metrics that end up being used. And it's much harder to quantify how HNEI model or a system is behaving. So that's majorly different. Um, it, and it's a little surprising. Wrap, yeah. to, I was just say, uh, it's a little surprising to tell an engineer that the first step in evaluation is going to be a, and I quote, vibe check. <laughs> Does it feel right to put, put your, you know, lick your finger, put it up in the air? And does this, do, does this look directionally correct is a far cry from an F1 score. And it's the funny thing. And you folks are in the annotation space is like two people are not going to read the same piece of text similarly. So inter labeler annotation, all of those things um, are becoming really mainstream and yep. really critical for these types of workflows. Yes, it was very unsettling. We built our own Gen AI features before launching the Workbench. And one of our biggest challenges was, all right, how do we evaluate in such a way where it's not my product team going and actually labeling things in a spreadsheet, which is state of the art for a lot of people. Absolutely. Um, so that's one of the things I hope will change in the upcoming year. Yeah, same here. Uh, and so on the evaluation side, or really I, d diving into the workflow. So I think that the phrase that uh, you effectively communicated was the shift away from the requirement of large amount of data to simply being able to start is prompt engineering is the phrase of the day. Uh, mm -hmm. Now I can simply apply, you know, context or instructions through my prompt and outcomes result generated text that is hopefully fingers crossed in the direction that I look, uh, that I want. How do you, how do you, measure or reason about how the effort into putting into your prompt versus let's say like fine tuning on a specialized data set? That's a great question. Um, maybe I'll point out a fun thing about prompts before even answering that. Prompting is an art and science um, than a science right. and people are developing new techniques. I did a talk at Scale by the Bay recently that I'll I'll send you guys a link to my go-to-market lead can write better prompts than I can and have a PhD in CS, let's be clear. So like, that's yeah. where the traditionally the people who have programmed these models are not necessarily the people who are going to be best at prompting them because it depends on uh, your ability to effectively communicate, which might not be what data scientists are trained for or engineers. And that we just found that really interesting like the most effective prompts if we pulled our team came from folks who had more of a literary bent than a yep. programming bent. And that's something um, I'm intrigued to see where that goes. But to your question, prompt versus fine tuning, um, practically, we believe that you should try prompting until perhaps you hit a wall and then you need to go for fine tuning. That's just because it's a lot cheaper to do right. prompting. You can spend a few days, you can try out the half dozen techniques that um, have been known to work well for prompting, see how far you can push it before you go to fine tuning. Um, and fine tuning is odd because you need to, the good thing is you don't need such a large data set uh, as compared to a training data set, but you still need the right kind of data set. So enough coverage on the axes that you care about, high quality, all of that, which in our experience, can be a little bit hard for Gen AI applications. If they're open-ended, like you're turning um, some notes into a document or 
you are creating something from scratch, you might not have those many examples. So that's where we found that prompting is just a lower barrier to entry. But once you hit that wall, you want to do the next best thing, which is going to be fine tuning with highly curated data sets. So I'm, I'm personally very interested in quantifying those walls. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and part of this is because to your point, prompting is very much both an art and a science. Um, I think we, we've, we've said on a past podcast, it's like, it's really easy to just look at prompt engineering and be like, oh, it's a lot of like hocus pocus and like hand waving and like kind of dismiss it that way. But the reality is that some of the techniques that people have illustrated, you know, like few shot prompting as an example, do work, right? Therefore, there is some relationship there that can be quantified in some way. And so I guess my, my, my broad question to you is like, you know, you mentioned earlier, um, just evaluating like prompting outcomes is a fundamentally hard problem right now because of kind of like the infinite space that generative models play in. Uh, I'm curious if you think that there is a future where we do have discrete metrics to describe these things, perhaps not as directly as precision recall, you know, F scores, accuracy, you know, and, and so on and so forth, but uh, maybe something analogous to the Gen AI world. Like, do you see that as like something that is inevitable, something that should be strived for, or do you think it's more of like a workflow process thing that every business should adopt and kind of like have almost like vibe checks integrated into their workflow? Um, I think it's the latter. Like the reason why accuracy or AORC works is because the output that you're getting is from a finite set or like um, a set that you can ref you can define fairly tightly. And there are numeric quantities that let you compare two points in that space versus for, um, and I'll separate out RAG maybe from generative use cases for the writing of text type use cases. I think it's going to be fairly hard to get a metric that is that tight. Um, and it's going to be, it's going to be objective. I think what we're seeing and where I expect this to evolve is there might be different dimensions on which you evaluate the outputs um, and the Helm benchmarks, if folks are familiar, they do some of this is like, what is um, fairness, bias, accuracy, and so on. Um, there might be conciseness, there might be, is it factual or not? So more and more, what we're seeing is there are going to be different axes on which the outputs are going to be um, evaluated. They could be prompting outputs or they could be just outputs from different models, fine-tuned or not. And you're going to be finding your best alternative in that multidimensional space. And um, I think it's going to be hard without the use case knowledge to predict which one of those metrics is going to make the most sense. So the view, my view of the world, and we actually bake this into our product is you're going to have a leaderboard of the different models and the prompts, and there are going to be multiple scores on which you're going to score your results. Um, and these could be use case driven. There might be some more generic ones, um, like from the Helm benchmark, but ultimately you're going to define which of these metrics matter the most for your use case. So that's kind of my worldview. That makes Maybe sense. Maybe develop I metrics internally. Oh, that's what we're seeing uh, from folks is because these are so use case specific. And this is where we did work on model monitoring um, 
we see a lot of parallels there, but it's not quite the same technique. So you don't really care about data drift. It's more, does this match my expectations type metrics? Got it. And I'm curious I, what you guys think too. <laughs> yeah, you know, like it, it's sort of like an open-ended question um, in, in my personal opinion. And we've, we've started research to this end. Um, I think like, I, I largely agree with you that like this is a multi-dimensional problem and it's also even hard to quantify like for instance things like conciseness whether those even matter in most use cases because it's possible that a the use case might not even be nlp right it could be uh, predicting over logs or something like that it could be um fraud detection within credit card transactions and you're like you know few shot prompting a set of transactions and kind of like uh augmenting it with metadata so there, there are a lot of cases where like you still want the broad generative foundation that come with these models, but it's possible that you're not actually outputting into an infinite space. It's possible that even if you are predicting like generic text, that you are actually predicting into a space that is more bounded than you might expect. Um, so concrete examples is that um, you might prompt several times, uh, you know, same exact prompt, and you'll get different outcomes but then if you embed those outcomes and you take like cosine similarity or something of the outcomes, you'll see that they're actually very, very similar amongst one another. Even if the structural like nature of them are different, they yeah. are conceptually aligned, which then implies that it is predicting into a bounded space just by definition. And then it's up to us to figure out like what exactly is that space and quantify the various dimensions of it. Um, so that's a yeah. long-winded way of saying, I think there are metrics, but yeah. I can't quantify what those metrics are right now, you know? Yes, um, and your comment actually reminded me of there, there was a really interesting paper from Microsoft Research on prompting techniques and yeah, ensembling and so on that really yeah, talks about what you were just describing and it's really, really exciting. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot more work to be done here and I, I think like it's, it's super interesting because for a while, uh, all ML like research and implementation was almost in pursuit of better and better like outcomes for specific use cases. And now it's almost been inverted. It's, we are getting pretty good results on like a wide variety of use cases. We wanna figure out why. Uh, so I'm really excited about that brand new tidal wave of research that is inevitably going to happen. Um, and again, like I, I'm hoping that in the future, there is a world where we don't have to just like bake in the, the technical concept of a vibe check into everyone's workflow. I think that's a good thing to have overall, but I don't want it to be the first and only line of defense. Yeah. You know, I, I want there to be more, and I, I almost have to feel like there is more as sort of like an engineering-minded machine learning person. Like, I just want there to be some quantification of why these things work the way they do. Yes, yes. And I'm optimistic that GPT-4 is supposed to be as good as a human grader. Maybe some of these things get automated and then yeah. there are metrics. So it's going to be exciting to see. Totally. So out there listening to this podcast, God bless them, is a data, God bless them, uh, it's a data science manager, small team, maybe have their first model or two in production, uh, have gotten some kudos from the business. It's actually returning on value. They're looking, you know, Gen AI, Gen AI, Gen AI. Their CEO has now told everybody that they're a Gen AI company. Uh, mm -hmm. News to them. What are, what's some... Uh, maybe some sagely advice uh, would you give to this individual looking to put their first LLM, you know, Gen AI applications in production? That is a great question. Um, 
I might pick, maybe I'll bound it at three. There's a lot that I might oh, want to yeah. say to this individual. Um, the first one is make sure, and this is not even related to ML, make sure your data governance is in place. Like that's the number one thing you know that you can actually use this data. Um, you're approved to use this data. There might be PII, PHI, and we talk to a lot of customers who are in those settings. Like, can you actually use this uh, without running into legal issues? Um, the next one is, are you sending this data somewhere where you're not supposed to be sending it? Um, and there's a lot of LLM providers and part of you know with what happened with OpenAI, um, folks are thinking about where are they going to run their models? Where can they run them securely? And so protecting the data, I think, is still a part of the data governance. Can you send this data to this provider for processing? So I feel like that's make sure your IT approves of it and you know uh, you won't get into trouble downstream. We have actually, a little bit related to that, we have done a bunch of work in model management where model governance is pretty critical and all of these applications have risk levels associated with it. And hopefully that thought has gone into selecting this particular use case. Um, there's a pretty clear risk tiering that a lot of companies will employ for their applications. So just make sure you're in sync with that. Um, so if we take that off the table, you know what you're doing is um, is approved by risk and IT, you're in good shape. Um, the next thing that I would think about is cost. It can be surprisingly expensive to run GPT at scale, depending on what kind of business you're in, how many calls you're making, all of that. And that's where I firmly believe that models in the future are going to be smaller and bespoke. Like GPT is great because it's a generalized model. It can do few shot on so many things. That's one extreme, but it's also a very big model. Um, on the other hand, if you look at the smaller models like a Mistral, um, order of magnitude, Mistral has 7 billion parameters. GPT 3.5 had like 175 or something like that. And they're pretty on par. Um, and so where I see it going is these models for use case specific scenarios are going to become smaller. And that will give an opportunity to um, fine tune the cost. So make sure you're not running out of your open AI or whichever Azure budgets um, as you're doing this. And then the third one is human in the loop evaluation, you're going to have tested this on this application on a fairly small set of data. Maybe it's a thousand, two thousand, if that, and we don't see people doing that. So like if you're at the thousands level, great, you're actually ahead of the pack. But what your customers are going to throw at you are going to be different data points. And so efficient tracking of those data points and then labeling again to make sure that your model is continuing to produce good outputs. Let's say those three things are the main things that I would ask anyone who's putting a app in production to think hard about. I, I'd love to just like zoom in a little bit as well. So let's say that this hypothetical uh, manager is tasking a team with building this like LLM application. And I, I see sort of like phases of development, right? S similarly to like an engineering workflow in any capacity. It's like you've got the initial development uh, sort of, you know, work where you get to sort of like your MVP, uh, you have it tested to your point with like some human in the val human in the loop evaluation. Um, and you're sort of like iterating to get better and better results earlier in the episode, you, you mentioned, you know, 
once you feel like you hit a wall with prompt engineering, move on to fine tuning. Within prompt engineering, there's like a lot of different techniques that you might look at. You know, you've got few shot, you've got few shot with rag, you've got like a whole bunch of like little things that people have uh, put forth. I guess my question to you is like, how much of that should this team be aware of? Like, where should they start? How do like, what walls might they hit? How do they get through them? Like, how do I know I need rag? How do I know I need to do few shot? How do I know that my prompt is the problem and not something else? Like, talk me through what I would be experiencing as a developer of one of these applications and kind of like the walls that I might hit along the way. Yeah. Um, I compare the process of Gen AI app development to the Gartner hype cycle. If you're in tech, you know what the Gartner hype cycle is like yep. peak of inflated yep. expectations, valley of despair, and then slope of enlightenment or something, plateau of productivity. Um, I map all of Gen AI development to that. You tinker with GPT, I'm, you know, I'm going to change the world. This thing is so awesome. It's great, you know. Soon you try it on real data and you're like, shoot, this sucks. Like this thing does not work. And then you keep trying to prompt engineer and like AI is really dumb. This is never going to work. This is just like a dead end. And then slowly but surely you discover the better ways of prompting. Maybe it's few shot or you're doing chain of thought or you're doing chain of density. And then you do fine tuning and you start creeping, you know, creeping up that um, path until you get to that plateau of productivity. So those are, in our experience, the walls you hit are you can't effectively prompt. And for a lot of people who are building with Gen AI aren't necessarily from this space. And so knowing the different kinds of prompting strategies is really challenging for them. Um, and for that plug here, so that's why what we did in the workbench was we apply the prompting strategies that exist. There's like six strategies that work, depending on the use case, we apply those prompting strategies so people don't need to go figure out what they are themselves. In our experience, that's not very differentiated work. You should still go in and tune the prompts after that, but we'll do a basic lay of the land. Here's what you can get with different strategies assessment for you to keep going. Um, so we found that to be really productive, getting to a baseline and then get to fine tuning. Like if you've done your basic strategies and you're not seeing significant difference or you're Whoever is evaluating the outputs are still saying, okay, something's missing. It's not getting the tone right. It's not getting, um, it's hallucinating. Great. Okay. Then move to more complicated cases. And so that's sort of my heuristic. And then the final wall they're going to hit is cost. And there's a whole different set of things that folks should do for that. That makes sense. So I think it's a good place to, Final question here uh, for both of you. Uh, crystal ball time. Uh, we're at the end of 2023. It's December 7th, 2023. We are just over a year of ChatGPT's release. And what a year it's been. Uh, it's been quite a whirlwind. I think uh, we're all in very different places than we were 12 months ago. Uh, crystal ball prediction for 2024. What do you see coming out in the world of AI in general? You don't have to box it to Gen AI. However, I think that's definitely the flavor of the day. Ooh. Um, okay. All predictions are wrong, but they're helpful. Or was that models? I don't know which are. <laughs> so that, yeah, that phrase has been used a lot. Um, I'll throw out three. That sounds like a good number. Um, multimodal is really catching up the Gemini release from, um, yesterday and just previous work. 
multimodal is really becoming real. Um, so I'm excited to see where that goes. And I think we're going to see a lot of advances there. Text has been great. Some of the other areas are catching up now. So lots of new applications will get enabled. Um, second one, I would say, is smaller and more specialized models will... I don't think they will become ubiquitous next year, but we're going to see real progress in how small can we make these things and still have them um, have high performance. So that's something I think will happen. Um, then I would say the third one is it's going to be interesting from a regulatory perspective on what happens in AI governance. That's where that might be more on the political or awareness level. I think we're going to see more with the EU AI Act hopefully going into effect and the Biden administration order. I think we're going to see some changes there that will hopefully push this field towards more open, transparent, and accountable AI. So. And at a minimum, generate a lot of consulting spend. <laughs> Yes, exactly. <laughs> you know, but and yet McKinsey reduced their partner class by like a hundred or something. So <laughs> there is interesting market dynamics right now. Let's just say that. Yeah. Uh, since you also directed the question to me, I'm going to yes and everything. I think all three of those predictions were spot on. Uh, again, with the giant caveat that every prediction is wrong, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I will add on to that. Um, I think uh, there. So one, one kind of like business level prediction is that I think like a lot of these companies and tools that exist that are kind of like a single Lego block in a larger set of things are naturally going to expand. Uh, I think moats right now are really, really small and everyone is currently afraid of open AI just coming in and eating their lunch, quite frankly. Uh, so I think there will be a defensive maneuver to eat more and more of the stack and gain more and more mind share. So I would expect to see a lot of people shouting about their more and more integrated workflow and stack than, you know, the next person's. Uh, I think that's, that's point one. Point two is I think out of that, hopefully, as I've been kind of like thumping my chest about it for a while now, uh, is just like the emergence of stronger metrics, kind of like more grounded understanding in like an actual prompt engineering workflow like when do I actually start prompt engineering? When do I stop? When do I start fine tuning? What should I be looking for? Um, at a minimum, start there, and then you know, hopefully that comes out with some set of metrics or some framework at least for people to think about it. And that's a second hope, less of a of a prediction, more of a hope. There, I hope that happens next year, but we'll see. Um, the third, and maybe this is controversial, maybe it's not. Um, I think right now we're still very much in AI experimentation mode as an industry. I think there are actually very few real generative AI workflows that are in production that are not just chatbots. And I don't mean to belittle chatbots. They, they serve a very important purpose. But my hope is that next year there is a stronger emphasis on bringing more and more of this to production. So... Uh, embedding more intelligence into the fabric of applications rather than it just being a widget of a chatbot that you can sometimes talk to and sometimes has integrations with things that you might do day to day. Uh, so I'd, I'd want more magic to be built into most of the applications that I use day to, uh, day, to day. My hope, again, is that that happens next year. 
I'm with you on the, that, that last one. It's like, <laughs> no more chatbots, please. Just yeah, like, please. For the love I of God. I don't even know that it's there. That's yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, I, I'm, it, I'm most excited about not feeling that I am using a gen AI powered tool. It should just mm-hmm. solve the problem that it was designed to solve and is better because there is a gen AI component in the background doing the value part. Uh, I'm, I don't need to see another talks to your, talk to your, your docs. It's fun. It's really cool. It's, it is useful, but, uh, I'm really excited to see all of that quote unquote boring ML, uh, kind of maybe come back in a little bit of fashion, uh, using these newfangled techniques. Uh, that was an awesome conversation. Manasi Cheyenne really enjoyed it. Uh, just to kind of wrap up here, any last plugs for you, Manasi with Verta, uh, anything, Twitter, anything. Yeah. Um, check out the Gen AI workbench. It's dub, dub, dub app.verda.ai. You can go and build a Gen AI application, experiment with prompts and models um, right in that same playground. And you should have an app in less than 10 minutes uh, if you if we have done our That's jobs awesome. right. If not, send me a note. <laughs> <laughs> go check out verda.ai and get your app in 10 minutes. I think it's a pretty strong sell right there. Uh, this was great. Everybody, I really enjoyed it. Uh, Just to wrap up here, I'm your host, John Singleton, co-founder and head of success here at Watchful, the machine teaching platform for data-centric AI. You can try Watchful for free at www.watchful.io. Guys, really had the great conversation. Look forward to chatting again and uh, best of luck in 2024. Thanks Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thanks, Modesty. Bye. Bye.